Tando, Wako, Wako, Nuya, Pila, 
you give life, you are love. You bring light to the darkness. You give hope. You restore every heart that is broken. Great are Lord. It's your prayer in our lives. So we pour out our praise, pour out our praise, it's your breath in our lives. So we pour out our praise to you only. You give life, you give life, you are love. Shout your 
grace, you're so great. Oh, great are you, Lord. Yes, you're great. Just declare it, sing it. Great are you, Lord. Yes, we declare it. Yes, Lord, we thank you that we live in a world where you are on the throne. And in your kindness and in your grace, you care for us. You supply in our needs. You are our healer. You are our everything, Lord. And nothing is beyond you and impossible for you. And nothing falls outside of your care for us. What an honor and what a privilege, Lord, that is. So we give you our hearts today. We give you our worship. And we declare, Lord, that we love you above all else. In Jesus' name. Amen. So this is the third Sunday that we're busy with our series entitled The King and I. And today the title of our message is Powerful Influence. And I want to start by reminding you just of that principle that we started this series with of one king. That there's one king that rules over all for all time and for always and in all things. That that last week we spoke about these four dominions that, or four institutions that God instituted that he gave limited authority to and how each of those has to intention operate within their authority so that they express the rule of this one king. And so while we speak about these four um, dynamics and these four institutions, I don't want us to again drift into a thinking, okay, there's four different elements, but that there's one king. One king that rules over all. And that, remember when we started the series, I said the heart of the series is to create a biblical framework for us that helps us to determine how we, uh, or that determines for us how we respond to the realities of our time and all the things that is happening right now, all the changes, and what do we do and how do we respond to it, and government regulations, and how do we respond. And that's why we were looking at these things, is to create that biblical framework. So a very important part of our framework, therefore, is that there's one king that rules over all, that everything is an expression of his rulership, and that he gave limited authority to these four institutions of the individual, the family, government, and the church, and how these work together in tension. But there's one king. And that's very important so that whenever we come to scripture or whenever we come to read something in the newspaper or hear somebody talk, that's one of the things that we've got to use to judge what we are reading and hearing is by this principle that there's one king. And I want to take you to a moment in scripture where, the, where this had to happen and where, these, where two worldviews came into conflict, where there was on the one hand a worldview that actually viewed the world as these two kingdoms and two kings that were fighting against one another versus a worldview that was believing this scriptural belief that there's one king. And that's that moment where Jesus and the Pharisees were locking horns with one another and the Pharisees were again trying to trick Jesus and show Jesus up as not being couldn't be the son of God because he didn't fit in with their belief system and what they believed is the truth. And uh, so that what they did is they, they tried to trick him by, remember, they asked him this question about, you know, should you pay taxes to Caesar? And they brought a, uh, and Jesus said, give me a coin. And then in, uh, we read it in, in Mark chapter 12, verse 17. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. 
So here they are trying to trick Jesus. They're questioning him because in their worldview, there was only one legitimate expression of the kingdom of God. And that was the kingdom. And that was the Jewish people. And so the Roman empire was an illegitimate expression. And that, that was wrong and it couldn't express God's kingdom. So that's why I say they had this worldview of duality of this, this kingdom of God represented by the Jewish nation and the Jewish people. And in that they had a, a confusion of how government and, and religion works together. And they made those two almost become one thing. And, and, and they were from that basis coming to Jesus and saying, you know, Caesar's government is illegitimate. We shouldn't be giving any honor and respect to Caesar. We shouldn't be paying taxes to Caesar, bottom line, because it's an illegitimate government. And so they, they try to trick Jesus. And Jesus answers, he says, there are things that belong to Caesar, and you must give that to Caesar. And there are things that belong to God, and that you must give to God. Now, when we read the scripture, we must be careful. That we stay true to our framework that there's one king, one legitimate kingdom, one ruler over everything. Because if we don't stay consistent with that, we can do that. What I think many Christians does is they read the scripture and they interpret it to mean that there's two kingdoms. That there's two realities in life. On the one hand, there's what we do in the kingdom of God and the worship of God and the love of God and giving to God the things that belong to him. And on the other hand, there's the things that we have to do because it's, it's the world we live in and there are just practical realities and things that we have to do. And therefore, you know, we, we are citizens of a nation and we pay our taxes. And, and those two things are actually separate from one another. That's not what Jesus was saying, because that wouldn't be consistent with his own framework and that which he established, which he came to represent, that there's one king that rules over everything. So what was Jesus actually saying? He was actually trying to communicate to them that everything belongs to God. Even those things that we would think belongs to Caesar belongs to God. Because the, 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 the play of words, what he was doing is when he was said, whose image is on the coin? And they said, Caesar's. He said, um, you know, the, the idea was, whose image are you made in? And whose image is Caesar made in? Caesar, as a person, as an individual, is made in the image of God. The office that Caesar has, government that he represents, who instituted that? God instituted that. So... While we may think it's these two separate realities, what Jesus was actually saying is that the rule and the reign of Caesar and of any government fits within the bigger reign of God. And that God's bigger reign is the reign that we, that we serve and by understanding and respecting that which he put in place, even a government like Caesar's government. And so as D.A. Carson, the famous New Testament theologian says, what Jesus' famous utterance means that God always trumps Caesar. God is always more than, than Caesar and he's the highest authority. And that's why the, the Jewish leaders were dumbfounded. They didn't have a comeback for Jesus because he completely didn't buy into their worldview, but presented the kingdom worldview. And that's our challenge today is to make sure that we are consistently being aligned and changed and transformed by this kingdom worldview. This belief that there's one God, there's one king, and therefore there's one kingdom. 
That is the true kingdom. Yes, there is, as I said, there is the charlatan, the, the, that, that is the king of, or the, of the kingdom of darkness, Satan, that, that is this false rule that tries to make that he is this, this ruler and this king. And, but we as Christians have seen, it has been revealed to us, we have seen him for what he really is. We have seen that the emperor has no clothes, that he has no authority, that he is not a ruler. There is only one king. And that's how we live in this world. Is to, is to make sure that everything expresses and reveals the rulership of that one king. And that's why we are disciples of Christ. To be a disciple is to be a person that all of your life is subject to Jesus and is being transformed and brought into the reality of being ruled by the one king where everything is about him. And that's why, you know, in our churches we talk about whole life discipleship and that's a core part of our, our mission and what we do is to make whole life discipleship, a whole, a, a disciples. A whole life disciple is, is a person that does not have these, these two boxes that there's God and there's faith on the other side. There's faith with and God, and then on the other side, you know, there's life and and politics and government and reality. But that there's this, that all these other institutions fit within the big one that is God's rule and authority. So therefore, everything in our lives is about is about Him. Is about being transformed. Everything in our life is about whole life worship. Everything we do is we worship Him. Now, I, I want to just give uh, uh, just recognition. So a lot of what I'm sharing today also comes from a book that I've been reading. The title of the book is How the Nations Rage, uh, Rethinking Faith and Politics by, by a guy by the name of Jonathan Lehman. Um, and uh, excellent material that he provides. And uh, a lot of just the, the thoughts that I'm sharing comes from, from that book or, or just uh, you know, inspired my own thinking also in it. And and so we want people that are whole life worshipers, people that worship God with their whole life, whether they, you know, in church, whether they're at home, whether they're in the mall, whether they're in the gym, whether they're at work, whether they're in the councils of, of the parliament, wherever they are, we are worshipers of God. But you know, the truth is, it's not only us that are whole life worshipers. Actually, every person that lives on this planet is a whole life worshiper. Because every person worships something. And every person expresses the, the worship that they have of something in, in their lives, in the various elements of their lives. There's no person that doesn't have something that they hold as the highest truth. Something that they believe in, that, that they arrange their lives according to, that they structure their activities and their thoughts and their engagements, their conversations, their relationships according to that truth which they hold to be their highest truth. Every person has something that we can say they bow the knee before. Every person has something that is their, their God. Even though if it is a, we can say it's a small g God, every person has that something. And, and if you, if you want to discover what a person's you know, God is what they bow the knee to. What is the, the ultimate truth that they live according to? You can just play that little game that five-year-olds so often play or three-year-olds and, and you start saying, why, why? So imagine like, for instance, you're having a conversation with a, a friend or a colleague and they say to you, you know, this morning I had uh, oats for breakfast. Uh, and, and in your conversation you say, oh, you know, I, well, I had, uh, you know, crisp rice, that, that cereal, particularly the strawberry flavored kind, you know, very nice and everything. And, and the person says, yeah, you know, I used to eat that but kind of stuff, but now I'm trying to be more healthy. Um, and, and so I ate, I ate some oats. And then you can ask them, so 
Why? Why oats then? Say, well, because I want to be more healthy and, and I realized that, you know, I have long days and I needed some more energy to carry me through the day so that I can work harder. Then you say, well, why do you want to work harder? Why do you want to do more and work harder? Well, you know, at work there's an opportunity for a promotion and I want to be in line for that promotion. So I'm, I'm going the extra mile a bit and my days are longer and I'm working really hard. And you say, now why do you want the promotion? Well, you know, with a promotion comes better pay. And, and I want better pay. Why do you want better pay? Well, if I get better pay, uh, we can buy a better house. Um, and, or perhaps I can get a better car. Why do you want a better house or a better car? Well, it's because then I can be happy. It'll, it'll really make us happy if we can, we can have a, a better house. Why do you want to be happy? You see, now we're starting to get to the, the real motivations. What is the reason? And if you keep asking a questions like that, you'll eventually come to the, to the answer that has no further question behind it, that has no other answer behind it. And that is the person's God for our purposes. That is the thing that people are living their lives according to and organizing their lives. And that's the thing that they worship in a sense. That because that's what they bow down before. Worship isn't just what happens in a mosque or a temple or a church building. Worship is what we do with our lives. Worship is what we give ourselves to. What that, and can I tell you what is the most worshipped God, small g God, in the world in existence? Is self. So much of what we worship is actually ourselves. If you keep asking those questions to people, you'll discover at the, at the backstop is self, me. What I want in life, my, my joy and my freedom. And that, that ultimately is probably the only alternative that we have towards worshiping God. And that comes right back to, remember what I spoke about, Augustine's writings of, of the city of God versus the city of man. And that's why I titled it the city of man, because it, it becomes about us. And, and everybody worships in that sense. So when we come to the issues of life, we are coming at it with these faith convictions that we have. Now, as Christians, we, we want the world to be organized and ordered according to what we believe truth is and, and according to God's rulership and the way God ordered and instituted things to take place. But so does every other person. That's why I say they're also whole life worshippers. They, they come at everything in life and they're saying it needs to be structured and ordered in a way that makes it possible for them to have what they believe is the most important thing in life. And that's why you hear so much today. People are saying, if you ask people, how do you decide if something is right or wrong? What they would say, as long as it makes me happy and it doesn't hurt somebody else. But actually, as long as it makes me happy. And I will do whatever I need to so to be happy. And that's how they structure and organize lives. And that's how we structure our world. And so when we come to politics, don't think there's a separation between faith and politics. As a Christian, there's no separation. There cannot be a separation between my faith and my politics because there's not government on the one side and God on the other side. It, government fits within my understanding of God's rulership. And God actually, for me, judges government because I have that framework. And, and that was simply the truth also in, in the Roman Empire. And that's why the Jews had a massive problem with the Christians. Oh, the, the Romans had a problem with the Christians. They called the, the Christians atheists. And they, and they persecuted them because the, the Christians refused to bow to Caesar as a god. Not as a, a Roman emperor or as a governor or as a, as, a, as a right to govern. But when Caesar declared that he's God, the, Christ, the, the, the Christians said, no, now you're stepping outside of your boundaries and we will not treat you as a god. We will treat you as a Caesar that represents government which is instituted by God, but we will not treat you as a god. And then the Romans 
you know, put them, started persecuting them, and uh, and some of the Roman emperors persecuted them, and you know, gave put them in the circus and in you know with lions and animals, and because they said they were atheists, because what they were doing is they were they were interfering with Roman gods, and Roman gods were very important towards keeping the order and, and the blessing of the society of the Roman Empire. And so the Christians were a threat. So right there, these Christians in the, in the, in the Roman Empire was in this battle between these worldviews. And, and we are in the same battle still today. Everything that happens is actually this expression of a person's faith that they practice through their politics. Let's give a simple definition of politics. Politics is how we negotiate in a nation or in a group of people about what, what is the right things to be done, how we should organize our lives and structure our society, and, and, and who should have the right to decide what is right and how we structure our society. That's what politics is. It's, it's about structuring and ordering a society and who gets to make the decisions. So that's why we have processes in any nation like we have in a democratic nation a democratic process which is a negotiation that takes place in the public square within a nation to to actually all decide how are we going to structure our society who gets what in the society how we share what we have how we live together um, and who gets to make those decisions and that ultimately politics produces government and from that we have a government that um, exercises the mandates that is given to them through the political process. And so every person, when they come into this public discussion of the public square and participate in politics, we must not think that they're doing it separate from their faith or their, their belief system. They're exercising their belief system. Because if, if my ultimate goal in life is my happiness then one of the major things that will impact on my opportunity for happiness is the politics of a nation and the government. And so therefore, I'm going to participate in those processes, whether as a, just a voter or whether I'm part of the, of, the, of the political system and the political scene. However, I'm going to participate in that to make sure that what I believe is the right thing to be done will be expressed and done. And so everybody comes and brings their belief system into the political arena. Now, we as Christians do that, and, and we boldly proclaim that what we believe is what, what, we, what, what God's truth is and what God's word says, and we bring that into the political discourse. And that's clear. But don't think anybody else comes with less of a religious conviction, because in a sense, there's no person in this world that is not religious that is not exercising and practicing their faith in some way. Uh, the the, the non-Christian novelist David Foster Wallace uh, said the following, In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And therefore he called himself a religious atheist. Because he recognized that everybody is worshipping something. At the altar of something, everybody's giving their lives. And when they come into the public square, that's what they, they bring against them. So, 
right now, in, we see it happen in the world. Whether it's in the formal uh, halls of government and, and parliament discussions and, and all the discussions where, you know, where political issues are being discussed and how we make decisions about how we structure our society, or whether it's in the more informal spaces like social media. There's, there's people that come and they all, whether it's subtly, indirectly, or very directly and in your face, we're all bringing into the public square and into the public discussion our, our, our conviction about what is right and what is wrong and what the world should aspire to and live for. And it is in that space that we must recognize there's actually no neutrality. There's no real neutrality. There's no Nobody that's really objective and, and, and does not care about religious convictions at all. Because everybody comes at it with a religious conviction. Everybody comes at it with something. So how do we decide? What do we do? What is our role as believers, as Christians with, within that? How do we make, bring our point in, in this public debate? And particularly this is where I want us to understand that right now, the way it's exercised in so much of the secularized Western world, the system is actually rigged against us. Because the moment you speak up in any public space, any public forum and public debate, and declare that what you believe is to be true because God says it, you are disqualified from the discussion. If you, if you have a big G God, and you want to make a public statement on behalf of your big G God, everybody says, no, you can't do that yet. This is, this is non-religious space. But the people that have small G gods, that have self-constructed gods, that are acceptable in our society, they can make their statements. They can, in the public space, say, but this is true. They don't attach some organized religion God, big G God to it. And therefore, it's acceptable and allowed. It's like um, the illustration that Lehman uses this illustration to say, to make this point of a, of a metal detector. You know, remember, imagine like when you're going to an airport and you pass through a metal detector. So imagine the public square, the public arena of debate. And there's metal detectors set up at the public arena. And so when you want to walk into the public arena and to be part of the discourse and the debate about how we should structure our society and who gets to decide how we structure our society, uh, as you walk in, the metal detector is set that it picks up. If you're trying to smuggle in some conviction that is actually based on your big G God conviction, uh, and then the metal detector goes off, beep, beep, you, you can't bring that in here. This is neutral space. This is, we, we don't, you know, religion doesn't determine our discussion here. But then the person comes up that has a small little handmade idol in, the, in their pocket, uh, and, and that that is the basis for their conviction about how such society should be organized. And, 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 and when they walk through, the system alarm doesn't go off because it's, it's got no official name to it. It's got no organized grouping around it. And therefore, they can come in and share their, their viewpoint. And that's how in the, in the public square right now, you know, we have the atheists, the secularists, the, 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 the liberalists, even the, the fascists, the conservatists, everybody that comes with their small g, self-made, self-crafted God can come into the public square and bring that. But those with a big G God, like Christians, Jews, Muslims, no, you can't bring that into the public square. So that's why I mean the system is rigged against us. And while everybody's bringing their belief system, 
we're told we're not allowed to bring our belief system. It's often said that we live in the post-Christian era, that we live in the time where, where Christianity is of the past. It's part of our history. It's, it's almost said that Christianity uh, had lost the argument. We, 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 we were in the public square. We even, we even dominated the public square for so long. But now we've lost the argument. And we've been proven that we are irrelevant. And uh, we are consigned to the corners of society. And what is literally told us is that you, you, you're okay. You know, with a pluralistic society, you can have your religion. And as long as you practice it in your personal space, but don't dare bring your religion into this public arena because this is a post-Christian era. You've lost the argument. You no longer have a right to determine how we organize our society and who should get to decide how we organize our society. You cannot make a law in a nation and it does not institute somebody's morality. Everything is somebody's viewpoint, somebody's conviction. And this is the challenge we face in our own nation, increasingly, that how are we making our voice heard? How are we bringing our influence to bear into the public square? How do we participate in the argument if the system is rigged against us and actually tells us that we are irrelevant and that we have nothing to contribute and nothing to bring anymore? Now, I want you to hear me correctly when I touch on these issues. What I am saying is that as an individual, as a person, you cannot separate your faith and your politics. You can't. They inform each other. It's not only true of Christians. No person can do that. Does that mean that I am now saying that the church should be in politics? No, absolutely not. There's good reason and we, because, remember, of our four institutions, that there's four institutions that God gave limited authority, sovereign but limited authority, within their boundaries to carry that authority. And God separated religion, church, and state government from one another in that space. And that, we believe, is a biblical principle, that you should keep church and state separate, but you cannot separate faith and politics so in a sense, what that means is, is, as an individual Christian believer, can I be in politics? That's often asked. Is, can Christians be in politics? My answer to that is yes. Yes. We are in politics. Every believer, you're involved. Whether you're just a voter or citizen, you are involved. Be involved. As an as a individual believer, we need to be involved. But as the church should be in, be in politics, that's where we say no. Church stays out of politics. There's a big line that God drew in his authority that he gave between church and state. And we, we believe that. But that does not mean that we step out of the public arena as Christians. Even in a time where we're told that we, have no, we don't belong. Our Christianity does not belong. As people, you can come in. As a person, as long as you leave your God outside, you could come in. Now, should we be happy with that? Should we do that as believers at this time? Should we be happy just to be stay in our little corner and be blessed and, and be fine and, and, and ultimately know that one day we'll be vindicated because at the great judgment seat, everybody will realize we were actually right? Should, is that what we should do? 
I don't think so. I think this is the time to be like Daniel was. Remember in, in Daniel 6 we read where Darius made the declaration and the, and the law that for 30 days they were, nobody was allowed to worship and pray to any other God. And in Daniel 6 verse 10 we, we read the following. Uh, sorry, where's my, my scripture now? I've gone way off outside of my notes. In Daniel 6 verse 10 we, we, we read where Daniel, when he heard this, went home, went upstairs to his window and uh, faced Jerusalem, and three times a day he prayed, and the scripture says, as he had always done. He refused to have his faith consigned to some private space and to say, well, I'm just going to be content. It's just me and God. It doesn't have an influence. Because he realized everybody was practicing their religion. And he was told that he wasn't allowed to practice his religion. And so he said, no, I'm going to pray in the public square. Now, some of you may have heard that story quoted and today, people are telling you, some leaders are telling you, that's why churches should gather together. That's why churches should defy government regulations, because we must practice our faith, you know, visible and out loud. And I, I understand that, but that's, that's not really the issue. Because is it, again, is it the government's right to tell us, for the safety of our society, that we shouldn't gather? Yes, it's their right. They're not stopping us from praying. They're not stopping us from spreading the gospel. There's no limitations put on that. I think what this is asking of us in our day is something far more risky, something far more personal. That it's not just us as churches together that have to in some way show that you, you, you won't silence us. It's every believer, every single Christian, wherever you are, in every context God sends you. Are you being silenced or are you in a place where you are speaking up your faith in the right way? And I'll talk about that just now. But that's the challenge before us. The Bible talks about being the salt and being the light. Jesus spoke about that. And to me, when I, I, I see those two pictures, I always, I, I can't help myself but think that when it talks about the light, it talks about being the light as the, the church collective, as the city, you know, that shines brightly, that, that, that car, and we have a responsibility to do that. And the church of Jesus needs to do that in every nation, every time. Be a, a voice of, of God's word, and, and that's our, our purpose, is to speak and remember I said last week, it's, the, it's the, what God instituted is our authority is to reveal his will, to make known. And we must speak, but it's not our job to make the laws. We influence, we speak the word of God, and we do that boldly and with clarity. But we're also the salt. Not only are we separate and distinct from the world, separate from the darkness, revealing the darkness of the world by us being the light, but we're also the salt. We're the salt that has to get right there into the the, the, the rottenness of this world, to be the preserving power that preserves that throughout even the rottenness, the, there's a preservation of the revelation and the reality and the presence of God's kingdom that can be shown even in the rottenness, that we are there to add flavor so that even in the fallenness of the world, every one of us goes as the salt and we, we reveal that, yes, even in this, you can see God has not left. He's not abdicated his throne. He is on the throne. So we are the salt and the light. And we are being that by, by not only speaking the truth of God, but doing it in the right way. You see, the world thinks we've lost the argument. We know there is no argument. There's no argument. We've not lost the argument because there is no argument. 
Just like the Pharisees tried to argue with Jesus. They were arguing on completely the wrong points, and that's why they, they could never win the argument, because there is no argument. How do you argue with God? How do you disprove that God is right? You can't. There is no argument. Because we're not living in a world where there's two kingdoms competing equally for, for God. There's one king. There's one God. Therefore, there is no argument. You and I are not having to defend God in that sense and, and, and win this argument in this world. That's not our job. We do present the truth, like the Scripture says, always be ready in season and out of season to give a reason for the faith. That we do. We, we boldly proclaim our reason as we reveal the rulership of the kingdom of God. We're not trying to tell people that, that God will one day win the battle. We're telling them that he is on the throne right now. And his rulership is established. And therefore, we're not fighting an argument. We are just here to reveal to people that God is on the throne. That he is in the rulership of our nation. So when we enter into the public discourse, we're not trying to win an argument. We're not trying to be better than anybody. We're not trying to disprove anybody in a sense. We're not, we're not fighting. We're coming in that space to live our faith. To live, to show what the rulership of Christ does. And we do that through our humility, our servanthood, our sacrifice. That's, that's how Jesus instituted his rule wasn't by standing on a hill and, 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 and calling people to pick up arms on his behalf and to fight against the government on his behalf and to show everybody that the Roman government or the Jewish leaders are, are illegitimate leaders. He, he conquered through his sacrifice, his love. And therefore, he is the name above every other name. And that's what we live out and express in this world. We, we, we should be careful that we don't develop some persecution complex and some, ooh, you know, oh, ooh, everything's falling apart and, oh, you know, we, we're losing. If the world tells us we've lost the argument, that's their viewpoint. We've not lost the argument. There is no argument to lose. We know God is on the throne. We know that his kingdom will rule and reign and that he will reign for eternity and that his will will be done. We know that. We are right now in the midst of all of this saying, how do we express God's kingdom? And next week, we're starting with our faith promise season. And, and, and I'm going to pick up from here and really go into the practicalities of the opportunities that are available to us in this world to represent the kingdom of God and to live his kingdom. I want to take you back to Isaiah 60. Arise, shine. Remember 2019. This is before we went into uh, the pandemic and lockdown, as, as God was saying to us, be ready. We were focusing on Isaiah 60. And I want to remind us of that because this is what God is saying to us right now. Isaiah 60, verse 1, 2, three, one, two and 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come. Not it will come, it has come. We are the light. And the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness over the peoples. The nations rage. They fight. They are competing. They are thinking that, there's, that, that they can win. But the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Because we reflect his rulership. And that hasn't changed. The world can do whatever they want to around us. It never changes the fact that God is on the throne and that we reflect there's one king. 
And so we participate. And through the influence that we have, and I'll talk more about that influence next week, we shape a society so that laws can be made that represents God's truth because we were the influencers in that society because we make a compelling case by our lives and who we are for the Lordship of Christ. Everything we do is worship unto him. Everything we do reflects that he is our God. Everything is about him. And we must live consistently with that so that it reveals the foolishness of all the other little gods that are trying to steal people away, deceive people, make people believe that they've actually found truth. But through our lives, we can show that, no, there's only one real truth. So I want to pray for you today. I want to pray that in the pressure of today, as, the, as everything feels like it's closing in around us, as we're struggling with you know, this pandemic, financial realities, and then this, just the, 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 the world that is trying to just tell us more and more that what we believe is irrelevant and untrue, that we will not take a step back as believers, but that we will arise shine, that we will pray in the window, that every one of us will live our faith. And you don't have to put this Jesus said on it. It's, you don't have to do that. Just live the truth because it's true and because that is what Jesus did. And But I want to pray for you that you will not feel weakened and disempowered, but that the Spirit of God will empower us to be his witnesses. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that stirs us. Thank you that, Lord, you help us to know. You give us the framework of how we are to respond to these days and the, and the issues that we face. And thank you, Lord, that our response is not to withdraw. It's not to sit down and to be quiet and just to be happy with what we've got. Our response is to step forward, Lord, is to, is to, to bring you into every space where we are. And to, and to stand and to declare the truth of who you are and your beauty and your majesty. Not because we're afraid or because we're trying to win a fight or an argument, but because we know that is the truth and we can do it with grace. We can do it with peace. We can do it with humility. And we can do it with, with just the strength that comes in meekness, Lord. And I thank you for that. Come, Holy Spirit. Empower each person. Thank you for every person that's with me in this service, that they are sent by you every day into the context that they find themselves to represent your kingdom and to be your Daniels, to speak and, and live the truth of God. And I, I speak your power and your grace over us. No spirit of fear will take hold of us in this time. We do not have a spirit of fear, but of love power and a sound mind instructed by the word of God so I bind fear in the lives of people there will be no fear that will determine our lives but our faith in who you are and the truth of your word will inspire and strengthen us and we thank you for that Lord in Jesus name amen thank you for being with me today may the Lord really bless you and empower you in this week